It's a rarity these days to listen to a new album where most every track is so good that you end up playing it over and over again. But when it does happen, you definitely realize that a little magic was added during the writing and recording process. Veteran keyboardist, synthesist, and songwriter Bill Labounty has delivered such a project with the release of Back to Your Star. For his seventh solo release, Bill brings together an all-star lineup of musicians who've helped create the solid foundation for success. Some of the contributors include David Hungate, Larry Carlton, Steve Warriner, Danny Parks, Robbie Dupree, and other excellent musicians. Produced by Danny Parks and Bill Labounty, Back to Your Star is a sequence of stories that will let you not only dig a musical groove, but also appreciate a lyrical flow that is almost poetry. It's jazzy, smooth, and grooves nice and deep. Inside Music Cast welcomes a true classic musician and songwriter, Bill Labounty. Hey, Bill, thanks for joining us today. I'm very happy to be here. Welcome. Hey, we want to, first of all, just congratulate you on the release of uh, Back to Your Star. We've been listening to it over the past few days, and, and man, it's, it's really growing on us. We love it. Definitely. Thank you so much. At this point in time, just hearing that is the biggest payoff that I have, <laughs> and it's always wonderful to hear. Well, it's, it's not like it's, what you do. You well, know? it's not just a you know a line we're pulling. I mean, Eddie and I have we've been talking about it a lot, and it's it's not left a CD rotation in my car. So exactly, it's it's great. Oh, I'm happy. You know, uh, we've interviewed several songwriters, Bill, you know, recently, um, who've spent really a large part of their careers writing for other people, and just like yourself. And and uh, and now you're coming out with uh, this, you know, after a, a few years of a long hiatus uh, to deliver some music. I mean, guys, for instance, that I'm thinking of are Stephen Bishop, Michael Sambello, Jay Graydon, Steve Procaro, Richard Page. You know, guys like that have been sort of uh, a little on the lowdown, and, and now they're coming off with um, with new music, and it sounds as fresh as ever. Uh, how do you think you can sort of relate to those guys, too, as songwriters? I, I relate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you mentioned Stephen Bishop and, and some of the other guys. Mm-hmm. Stephen and I used to know each other in Hollywood when we were both kids. Oh, really? We weren't like buddies, and, and we didn't even hang out that much, but we would bump into each other at mm-hmm. demo sessions because we were songwriters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't long after. In fact, Stephen may have been there then. That um, Fagin and Becker yeah. um, were do, were hitting the streets, yeah. trying to get their songs cut. And Hall and Oates, wow. they were songwriters signed to publishing companies, and as was Stephen. And I had a publishing company, and and um, so there was this little community then, similar to what Nashville became. Uh-huh. Um, at, that housed a songwriting industry, guys that wrote songs for people that were recording that uh, were looking for hits. You know, it's kind of the West Coast Brill Building version. And it, yeah, it, yeah. it was mid-60s to, to early 70s, and then that started to fade out. Things got really in-house. And around the time Stephen got it, I remember he got his record deal, and that was exciting to a lot of people because... He was like a singer-songwriter, and he did this record, and and then pretty soon On and On was on the radio, and Stephen was Stephen. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and then a, a lot of my friends that were in that business, in the business of writing songs, mm-hmm. 
excited and looking to get their own deal, you know. Sure. Mm-hmm. I originally came to, to L.A. as a as an artist. I, I had a band, and, you know, back in the old days. I grew up in Oregon and um, playing rock and roll in bands in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. In the Pacific Northwest, it was Louie Louie. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody learned Louie Louie, you know. Every band, when I was a kid, played Louie Louie. <laughs> Who didn't, man? It was an awesome band. It was an awesome you song. You had to play it and uh, in the Pacific Northwest, for sure. And, and, and um, you know, who was um, Richard Berry had the original recording, but for some reason it caught on up north, and everybody, gang, gang, gang. <laughs> learned that thing. And... Nobody ever had a hit on it. Nobody ever really recorded it, and finally the Kingsman recorded it and got the yeah. hit. But anyway, that was um, that was I was probably sixteen when I first joined the band. Well, I always love to ask this question, but at the age of sixteen, uh, what what uh, who were you influenced by? What were you listening to? I mean, obviously Louis Louis the Kingsman, <laughs> but what what else were you listening to at that time? Well, there was that local Pacific Northwest scene, and that was a time when there wasn't a whole lot to listen to, except the, the things that you might have heard in your own region. But right. uh, in general, for pop radio, it was the Beach Boys mm-hmm. and um, the Ventures, mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. of the instrumental music being on the West Coast. Yeah, right. Filter up from L.A. and California. Um, and then the Beatles hit. And, um, you know, everybody, I, I was older, well, I was about 16 when they got, when they were first on the Ed Sullivan show. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting on somebody's carpet, watch, I think at my date's house, watching TV when <laughs> really? they came on, and I just remember how huge that was. Oh, you know? yeah. I it imagine. was almost bigger than the Kennedy assassination. You know? <laughs> it was a nice substitute for the Kennedy sure, assassination. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I just remember thinking, oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, where I'm going. I don't, not having any idea where that was. Of course, mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody does still. But <laughs> a lot of people t- got on that big wide highway. And exactly. I quit college eventually. I remember. And, yeah. Because I had a rock band, and we were playing, and we we went from our little area of Eastern Oregon to Portland, Oregon, and eventually I moved to Seattle, and Seattle had its own sort of. Um, Hate Asbury type scene called mm-hmm. Queen Anne District. Yeah, right. <laughs> all the bands, all, all the freaks and the bands played up there, and, <laughs> and there were all kinds of. It, it, and it, you know that scene up there. It's always been. I mean, grunge was a good name for it. Yeah. It was. Um, it was a lot of young white guys trying to scream like James Brown, and, <laughs> and, and being able to scream was more important actually than being able to play. <laughs> So how did you scream back then? I had probably <laughs> had a pretty high scream, but I did try to scream. <laughs> and uh, but it was those were good times, and and uh, and then eventually it occurs to you, um, wow, if you quit college, if you're going to do this for a living, what? How do you do that? And then, and honestly, I mean, I I'd been playing music with these bands, and the, and never occurred to me that you ha- that you wrote the song mm-hmm. you couldn't just do covers right, <laughs> yeah right. you couldn't just do louis louis anymore everybody done it for a long time and you had to write something <laughs> and um so then it started getting more serious you know then you get with a bunch of guys that you assemble and you say let's get really good 
and then let's go down south. So yeah. Go to Hollywood, and and the first place you hit when you're from the Pacific Northwest was Vegas, and you could always get a gig in Vegas. Yeah. Not always, but if you were halfway decent and you had a set, and by by that time we did, I guess I was probably 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. Um, you could play in Vegas at. There were maybe two rock joints at that time in Vegas. At that time, it was 69, I think. Because I remember sitting at a bar in Vegas at a casino watching the guys walk on the moon. And there was one jo- one joint was called the Pussycat Agogo, of mm-hmm. course. And it was back when, if you see the movie Casino, I think that was supposed to have been 1970, but it was very yeah. mob-oriented back then. And I remember part of the deal pussycat place we played <laughs> we got we had to spend two hundred dollars of our pay in chips had to be spent <laughs> that was a requirement huh? that was a requirement yeah <laughs> and which you know i don't think i a couple of the guys won a lot of money i was going to say on the bright side you could have won some more <laughs> yeah I think I don't think I never did make a fortune, and I never knew anybody that did. But I remember one guy winning eight hundred bucks in a little casino on all these sirens and bells and whistles. And he was about half high on some hallucinogenic and ran out in the street and never came back. So no, which was frustrating for some of us. Collect points. So you were on nineteen at the time. Are you talking about your uh, your band Fat Chance or not? It was a band called Struggle. Struggle. <laughs> struggle. And we identified with the, the big, the class struggle, you know. And, and, but w- I remember one of our first gigs was opening for Sly and the Family Stone. Really? Holy who had cow. Just, wh- whose song, I think it was Dance to the Music was their first single. Yeah. was screaming all over the charts. <laughs> and they were stuck in this gig in mm-hmm. Vegas. And that they couldn't get out of to go and support this record, you know. And yeah. <laughs> later I heard this story about it, because they finally got out, and th- that was back when the mob, you know, you wouldn't think of breaking a contract like that. Oh, right, right. But apparently somebody <laughs> from Sly's management went to the state of Nevada, and he said, did you know that there's a band at the Pussycat that has three kids in it that are under... 18 years old or whatever it was. Of course not. Which was true, you know. And that was one place where Nevada didn't, you know, they had some control over what went on, so Mm -hmm. some liquor dick came in there and busted (laughs) the club, you know. And they got out of their deal that way, and they got to go and and do their tour support. And I remember down the street from us at the Flamingo, which was one of the few bigger clubs, was... The white James Brown. What was his name? He had that big blonde pompadour wig. Oh my gosh, I don't know. But <laughs> every but you had to go see this guy because he had horns. <laughs> they did James Brown arrangements uh-huh. and stuff, and uh, Wilson Pickett and all the soul stuff, and that was really what was happening then. But the main thing everybody wanted to see was this bass player that was in this guy's band, uh, and it was Jocko. Oh, Back okay. then, nobody Ooh, knew yeah. from Jocko. Okay. Jocko played uh, a jazz bass that he filed all the um, all the frets off. Right, you know? right. He played this style that nobody, and everybody would just stand there and go. I mean, it was a great band, the horn arrangements and everything, but what really stuck out to guys like us 
was this rhythm section with mm-hmm. this guy playing bass that was doing these amazing grooves, you know, mm-hmm. that nobody hit. I'll bet it was like 15, 20 years ahead of its time. Holy yeah. I mean, now it was like listening to to a lot of the things you hear now, but which mm-hmm. back then was highly unusual, where guys are just sliding and moving and popping and 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 doing all that stuff. But that was Jocko, and I didn't know that until um, I was reading some book about him, mm-hmm. and I read because I remembered the bass player, but I read that Jocko played in that band mm-hmm. back then. <laughs> so that had to have been him because. The, and it said he's, he, it was when he first started uh, sanding the frets off his bass. Oh, wow. yeah, that's neat. That's cool. But anyway, we ended up in L.A. Uh, I had a different band. You're right. It was this band, Fat Chance. And um, I remember we played at the Troubadour on Hoot Night. Mm-hmm. And um, really knocked them dead. And we got a deal on RCA to do, I think it was a singles deal at first. But somehow mm-hmm. it became an album deal we signed with this real old school um one of these guys back then that was a manager a publisher a record company everything all the (laughs) file cabinet behind him (laughs) when you signed those kind of deals it was never for like a year it was always like 15 years seriously you know I mean, I think everybody signed one of those kind of deals back then. Mm-hmm. Like, I know Michael McDonald did, and sure. Jackson Brown, and yeah. all these different people who did a lot better than I did, but yeah. they all ended up... I won't name the names of the of these guys, but they're fairly well-known. Yeah. And uh, how, long were you got, how long were you with them? We were together for about three years. Hmm. Okay. And um, even after we did our RCA album, we went back. We had to support ourselves touring in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. But we did have that album, and that helps. That always helps you make a lot more money back then. And um, whether you have a hit or not, because the, the music business was such a different animal. Back oh, sure. It was incredible. It was, it was still very, very regional. Mm-hmm. You, it was actually more exciting because of that, because you'd go to a different area. You might, you might drive out. You might get a little tour with some English guy that came to the States to tour or some band and, and do Chicago or something. And you'd go through all these regions and play, and you'd hear all this new music. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember hearing James Brown for the first time when I was a kid, and mm-hmm. hearing the really great R&D acts and stuff and mm-hmm. how much that changed everything, you know. Anyway, Fat Chance broke up, and um, some of the guys got married, settled down. And, you know, that's when you separate the... Right. I want to say the men from the boys, because probably the guys that quit were the real men. <laughs> you know, I don't know what. <laughs> I was curious, though, about, you know, the band Fat Chance. I, I, I've not had a chance to hear that that album, and I was curious to know, uh, what kind of music were you guys doing? Was it, was it more funk? Was it more soul or R&B? Sadly, it was, um, it was very overseen by this manager we had and the label itself. And it was very, very de- uh, defined and, and dictated. Okay. So kind of, it's kind of boring, but <laughs> some of the songs show potential because there was I there was another guy in the band named Steve Eaton, who is an amazing musician, songwriter, and singer, mm-hmm. who is, actually lives back in the Pacific Northwest. Mm. Steve and I did all the writing for the band, and. Um, 
but they took our, the band played live, and it was one band, and then you'd listen to the record, and it was a different band. <laughs> For one thing, um, it was sort of a blessing and a curse at the time, but most of the guys in the band didn't get to play. They brought in the ringers, you oh, know, the no. great, great session guys. Right. And who catered, basically, to the business and to popular music. And on one hand, I was very disappointed, but on another hand, it was very educational for me, you know, mm-hmm. and another way to, be, to, to sit down um, in the studio with all these guys. And, and that was right after the Wrecking Crew sort of was not the thing anymore. Things After that psychedelic era, L.A. changed and... And so I was. I, I eventually was playing with guys like um, Leon Russell and Jim mm-hmm. Gordon mm-hmm. and Jeff Picaro. Yeah. Eventually Steve Lukather, mm-hmm. Carlos Vega, sure. Larry Nectel. Yeah. Greg Fillingaines. Heavy hitters. Yeah, heavy hitters. And the band had broken up, so it was just me. And I was writing. I I don't. I very rarely was lucky enough to get one of those guys on a demo session, but I was also in development with various labels at the time mm-hmm. through my through my manager producer yeah Eddie, Eddie, Eddie and I were just talking right before the we, we started the interview, and we were talking about your 1982 release. It was your self-titled release, and, and uh, we were checking out the list of, of players on that. And talk about heavy yeah, hitters! Really, that was just that that album was just loaded with you know ringers, <laughs> great session players. You know, Luke was on that, and you had Jeff Bracaro and gosh, Greg Fillingaines, and I mean, it was just it was like a who's who. That was with uh, Russ Titleman. Right, right, yeah. right. And just working with him was a wonderful thing. Yeah. And and back then those guys weren't weren't quite the iconoclasts that that they turned into over the years, you know. Yeah. They, some of them were, you know, some of them were always great. But Carl was always sort of legendary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Steve was well, Toto had had a couple hits then. And, but yeah, I mean, I was lucky to um have been a part of all that because I think I think a lot of the music that was made back then um was was very original mm-hmm. and, and of it was of a time, but it was also of a quality. Right. That I don't know if it will ever be restored, just because of the the, the different nature of recording. Oh, you're and right. How right. expensive it is. And yeah. The idea of bringing in, you know, a string orchestra or a horn, or hiring a horn section. Right. You know, exactly. With, with sure. these beautiful arrangers like Jerry Hay and stuff to, sure. to come up with these the guys that. All the things we love about Steely Dan and, mm-hmm. you know, guys that had to do, have, and still do, you know, thankfully there's still a Steely Dan. Yes. And, um, but this was an era when everybody kind of approached everything that way. It was, it, it, and nobody really thought of it as a luxury. It was just How you the did way it. you got to express yourself sure. musically within right. the business as, as it existed back mm-hmm. then. Yeah. Hey, Bill, tell us a little bit about um, when you started wrapping your arms really around the keyboard and, and, and keeping in mind that there's a significant difference between a, a player and a synthesis performer. But like you were you just mentioned Steve Porcaro when he was starting out. I mean, he was pretty much a, a programmer that really got his foot in the door. And and he said that in the last interview that, uh, hey, that that's what people were looking for him for, to be a synthesis. How did the keyboard play into your um, your music and what were you doing at that time? Yeah, and Steve was great, too. I don't know if I ever had him on a session, but I was at sessions that he played at, and he mm-hmm. would bring in these banks and banks of mode stuff. 
yeah. and make and and that was back. You know, you, you forget how miraculous those sounds were back then, and, sure. and people and there, and not everybody could even come up with those envelopes that did all these amazing things. Mm-hmm. Right. But um, when I was a kid, you know, it was just you played a piano, and I was just talking to somebody about this um, recently, but that. Um, they, I couldn't afford an electric piano when I was a kid. Right. I I couldn't afford a Whirly, and I didn't even know that much about Whirlies because you know Ray Charles played one, and I see sure. pictures of these bands with a Whirly in the picture and mm-hmm. think, wow, that's cool. But for me, what, and a lot of the guys that played keyboard back then, and there weren't that many in the Pacific Northwest, and we're talking '63, '64. What you did, and I learned this from these older guys. Greasers, really. My, I remember they'd come to the door to pick me up to play, and my old man <laughs> would say, Hey, there's something here to see you. Uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, what you did as a keyboard player to, key, to get over the drums and the guitar and the bass was you took the guts, the filter out of an old, some cheap tape recorder like a Roberts, Mm-hmm. And you got a you made a wedge like a doorstop, but longer mm-hmm. like in shop class or something. I forgot how I. I think an older guy helped me make mine, and and then you tack that the guts to that Roberts onto that onto that wedge, and um, and put a you know so it would, so that you could plug a guitar cord uh-huh. on the uh, you put a guitar cord on the other end, and. Um, it was like a microphone. Yeah, Deep microphone, and then you <laughs> tap that wedge into the back of a of an old upright piano. Interesting. And if you t- if you had a good one, you you tapped it in there and plugged it into like a Fender or a. Remember, I had a big National amp, and put it on a chair, and then and then and as a p as a keyboard player back then, you just wanted to be heard, and so that's why you hear all those guys banging the shit out of the top end, <laughs> the keys, you know, and making, putting big blisters. And ca- I remember I had a spoon that I bent because I saw a girl doing it in some band. And, and you used the spoon for glisses. You could just glisten oh, yeah. all up and down yeah. and bang and bang and bang. And it was rocking, you know. You looked good doing it. Anyway, if you, didn't, you didn't always get heard too well because even with the cheap mic and the wedged in mic and the amp i still had a lot of trouble getting hurt <laughs> and uh, then pretty soon farfises were available easily available and then eventually hammond was the big step sure i, re- I remember i saw my hammond in a roller rink <laughs> and it was a it was one of the first b models ever made it was like 1947 uh-huh. 46 it was wow. after world war ii it was a bv uh-huh and um, I remember that they were going to take that out of there and put put records in the roller rink. And I went and saw the owner, and he sold it to me. That's cool. Wow. Do you still have it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good thing, because my back's not in that great of shape. <laughs> Tears up your back, those hammers, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> but there was no, that was a love. It still is to this day. I, that's why people still want them. Yep. Know? Yeah. Well, hey, over your career, you've spent, you know, a great deal of effort as a songwriter for pop and country artists, you know, and I'm going to name a few people like, like Patti LaBelle and, and your friend Robbie Dupree and Jimmy Buffett, the Judds, Temptations, Brooks and Dunn, Tim McGraw, and I, I think maybe even Neil Diamond we can throw in there as well, right? <laughs> yeah, I, and, met, I got to meet Neil Diamond. 
Well, I also want to mention a, a few highlights. I mean, you delivered uh, Steve Warner's number one record, The Weeknd, a, a Grammy-winning uh, record. I Got Dreams by Alison Krauss. And uh, what else here? We got the number one Shenandoah single. Yep. Yeah, I Want to Be Loved Like That. Yep. And even that. Uh, uh, oh, uh, yeah, Shenandoah. And Alison Krauss's song w- was a duet with Shenandoah called Somewhere in the Vicinity of the Heart. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. That's All neat. Right. And uh, you've even had a Grammy nomination for uh, a recent guest of ours and, and your good friend Robbie Dupre, Hot Rod Hearts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Robbie and I go way, way back. Yeah. We're like We're kind of like brothers. Yeah. <laughs> besides the, Fran- the fact we're both French-Canadian, and of course, he grew up in Brooklyn, and I grew up on the Snake River, and that's a little bit... That's a little polar, isn't it? <laughs> we'd like to actually, we'd like to actually thank Robbie for sort of uh, indirectly hooking us up. Uh, um, but uh, anyway, he's 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 so talented. He asked me to ask you um, if you even remember how you guys even met, and he said that with a, a little caveat that uh, you know uh, that that you may not be able to to remember this. So I've got the story straight, but I'm going to give you the first shot as to telling me how you guys actually met. <laughs> You know, I never forgot it either because it was such a nice thing. I was signed to Warner Brothers then mm-hmm. as an artist, and uh, I had this song uh, that I was excited about, and they weren't so excited. They said, no, you're going to have to write some more before we spend the big bucks in the studio for right. the next album. And so I had this song sitting uh, in this studio that, that I used. A guy named Gary Brandt mm-hmm. owned the studio. And I can't remember the name of it, but it's where Robbie was working on his very first project. Mm-hmm. And he, at the time, he had a hit on the radio called Steal Away, and it was all over everywhere. Sure. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have an album to go with it yet, and so they were re- doing a rush kind of job getting that album together. Right. And, and uh, I got a call. I, I lived up in Lake Arrowhead, about a two-hour drive from L.A. Okay. And it was about... 11 at night, and I was just laying in bed watching TV, getting ready to go to sleep, and the phone rang, and um, it was Gary Brandt, who I knew very well, and he owned the studio, and he said, Bill, Robbie Dupree is here, and of course I knew who it was, because Steal Away was so popular, he said, do you mind if I play him Hot Rod Hearts? And I thought, well, damn, that's, that's the only thing I have that looks like it could be a hit with Warner Brothers, and, but then I... You know, I just thought, what the hell? I said, I thought, maybe he'll like it more than they did or something. <laughs> I said, yeah, go ahead and play it for him. You know, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm free to let go of it or not, but go ahead and play it for him. <laughs> and um, so he hung up, and about 10 minutes later, um, I get the phone rings again, and, and uh, it's Rob. And he said, I love this song, man. I'll, I'll do anything to <laughs> do it. And, uh, That's cool. Which was like music to my ear. Uh-huh. And, um, and I thought, and I said, well, can I play on it? And can, can I come down? It, it takes me a little while to get there. And uh, he said, yeah, come on down. And so by the time I got there, it was midnight or so. And that's when the track was done. Holy cow. And then I ended up singing background. I did the background vocals the way I wanted to do them. Sure. And uh, and the rest is, as they say, history. Thank history, you. history, history. <laughs> <laughs> it came out, and it was it was doing real. It, you know, it did real well right away. Sure. What they needed. Yeah, it was a great track. 
But what's the caveat? That I know that one thing I remember is that anything you get involved in with Rob is a party, and it's really fun. And he keeps <laughs> you laugh. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> yeah. And um, he's really a brother, and, and uh, I'm always happy to see him. Yeah, the bit of, the little nugget was that there was no demo, there was nothing. I mean, you came in, that thing was raw. I mean, that thing was, you just threw it on the table. You, he said you came into the studio, played it on the piano, and you guys were off. I mean, and there was no prep, no nothing. I mean, this that was just a raw song, you know? Well, maybe, we're, maybe you know how these things change in your head after time going by, <laughs> but, but maybe, yeah, maybe, um, maybe Gary called and asked me to play it, and I, and I couldn't. Or something. I don't know. I can't remember, but yeah. I just remember getting down there. That's all right. It's a, it's a good story anyway. <laughs> it's a good story, isn't <laughs> no it? No doubt. No doubt. Well, we were talking about songwriting here a minute ago and all the people you've written for it. You know, and having written so many songs for such a variety of, of various artists over the years, and, and of course releasing uh, several records of your own material, I'm sure there's a great deal of, of satisfaction from, from both perspectives, but I mean, is there one or the other? Is there one that's more gratifying than the other, or is it equal? Um, in, in terms of songs, successful songs, or well, artists, just, artists that I've worked with? Just in terms of uh, writing songs for, for other artists as opposed to writing your own material and releasing right. your own album. Sure. You know, songwriters get asked that, and, and artists, and, and it's always hard to, to answer, but I, I have to say that for me... Um, the earlier songs that have done well are at this point in my life are, are always gratifying because it's it's like wow I've been doing it all this time mm-hmm. uh, and um, I've got all, and all these songs are like big bingo cards out on the table now. <laughs> like I've got like eighty of them or something, you know? but the song for me that seems gratifying is this night won't last forever yeah yeah Michael Johnson uh, I wrote it. It was inspired by real life and a bad marriage and the end of a marriage and and I was very young and um, and it's been recorded now like three times yeah. in a single and um, it it's uh, and it's done very well over the years it's you know it compared to the songs of a lot of great writers it's not it's not one of those giant evergreens you know that like uh, wind beneath my wings or something but it's mm-hmm. But it's a song that's hung in there for me and always um, made my body of work shine a little more. You yeah, know? That, that was a wonderful track. Yeah. I mean, I remember when Michael Johnson, when that came out, and, and uh, I mean, it was just, it just, it was play, being played everywhere. Yeah. I really do. I mean, that was the, one of those nice ballads. It was well built. The, uh, it flowed. Um, and I mean, then, then later on, Sawyer Brown comes around and they, they do it again, you know? Yes. And and the year before Michael did it, I uh, yeah. had a version of it out mm-hmm. that did. It didn't do nearly what he did, but I think it got to the high forties or the mid forties on okay. AC, and it got a lot of play here in the South. And at that time, I'd never been to the South; I had no idea. But mm-hmm. uh, now, when I go out and do songwriter nights and do that song, everybody knows it. And I guess it, it's a lot of that was due to the single that I had out mm-hmm. prior yeah. to. The, the year prior to uh, Michael, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, that song, that song, pretty much made me look like a songwriter. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, and it definitely crossed over formats too. I mean, you'd hear it on uh, country stations, right. but you'd also hear it on like a you know light rock stations, and and it was uh, you like Eddie said, you heard it in, in several areas, everywhere. It doesn't get the play that it that it once did, but it but it still shows up. Sure, and that's 
so that's a nice thing for a songwriter to have one of those, you know. Yeah, really. You know, even though uh, country music hasn't typically been, you know, my personal choice, my personal style of music, this particular song is one that I've always really enjoyed. So let's take a quick break and, and take a listen to Bill's version of his classic track, This Night Won't Last Forever. Can't last forever 
was the track This Night Won't Last Forever from today's guest, Bill Labonte. Well, hey, let's talk about uh, some, some big news here. It's your, your new album, Back to Your Star. And, uh, you, know, you know, the moment that Eddie and I first heard, uh, you know, the first few bars of the title track, Back to Your Star, I mean, both of us were, were lured into it, and we, <laughs> we just hung out and heard the rest of the album. It was so great. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you like it. Yeah. That's what you do it for. Well, tell us, from the onset of this project, when you look back at uh, your previous albums, and which were all great, even your initial one, your first one, you know, over the span of the years between them, um, you know, what was your approach? Anything different as you approached this album as a sort of a little hiatus of, of pumping out some work? What was a little different? What was your approach like? Well, um, it, yeah, and it had been a while since I'd done any mm-hmm. recording, you know, Writing, songwriting, you know, thinking of yourself as a recording artist is sort of luxurious and vain. And and uh, and I, but peop, I, I forget, you know, there was a time when I wasn't really a songwriter. I created songs so that I'd have vehicles to sing mm-hmm. for my records. And the idea of being a songwriter for some kind of marketplace never occurred to me. Right. You write long enough, and pretty soon it never occurs to you to actually open your mouth and sing and play simply because you like the sound of it. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, th- But the fact is, you can't really create an album and perform it unless you think that way. Unless you think, what do I like? What, mm-hmm. what kind of noise do I want to make? Exactly. You know, what kind of chord do I want to play? Mm-hmm. And you have to forget all that, all that stuff that you've accumulated about what's, who's looking and what's cool and... and and uh, what's not, and you have to go to another place to, to pull the music out. And um, so that was my approach to this. And, and um, even when I did make records in the past as a young man, um, I always had some giant media label looking over my shoulder and saying, no, that's, that's not for the radio. And yeah. That's, this is, go this way and write with this guy and do this. And this is... When I did this record, I just said, you know, what's the point in doing this at all, other than just doing exactly what the hell that I want to do, right? And, and create the kind of music that I'm feeling right now, and 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 uh, so really, it was kind of in my head, and I, I it was kind of an anti-pop record, and mm-hmm. for somebody like me who's been doing it since I was very young, it, it's hard for me to get too far away from pop. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go in there and and create you know, like a Dylan album or something, or something that, you know, it's, I'm just who I am, but I wanted to write about real things that really, that I really felt emotionally about more than just love songs, and I wanted to write about, I guess what I was talking about earlier, uh, about growing up, about being on a quest mm-hmm. with a bunch of guys in a Old in an old used Cadillac with a U-Haul in the back, mm-hmm. and going, you know, we. I bet I played every bar and tavern between Seattle and San Diego <laughs> <laughs> between the time I was sixteen and when I was about until I was about twenty-five. Well, you know what? That's that's interesting. I, that's that's actually a question I wanted to ask you. And over the span of Eddie, asked you about how you approached albums. You know, from earlier in your career to to now, to you know, to your current album. I wondered about, you know, you've, you've lived in various places. You're like, you've lived on the West Coast. You've been, you know, you grew up in the Northwest. You right. spent a lot of time in Southern California. And now you're in Nashville. 
So I'm just curious, have, have those places influenced how you write? Oh, and, sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, when I approached this album, I, I put a band together because I was just frustrated. I just, you know what it is? I just realized I've come full circle. Mm-hmm. I'm like, in my head, I'm 18. <laughs> I want to make some money playing music, you know? Right. And I don't want to write something for Reba McIntyre particularly. Right. And, and uh, so I put a band together. Mm-hmm. This has been a couple of years ago. And of just my favorite guys here that I love and I've always loved to play with, uh, like, like Hungate, David Hungate. Sure. And um, Tommy Wells mm-hmm. is a drummer here in town. Yeah who's one of the few who's got that Bernard Purdy sort of bebop thing. And, yeah, and, yeah. And um, Michael Rhodes, uh, who, who I've always wanted to play with, and I've never really gotten him for demos, which he would have been kind of wasted anyway, but to be able to get him to come and play with me for this project was great. Whoa. But when we, we just, I just wanted to put a bar band together, mm-hmm. go in and play at Douglas <laughs> Corner and... You know, Third and Lindsley and these sure. a- avenues that people play at here in town, mm-hmm. just for the shake, sake of you know making making noise, you know, mm-hmm. making a racket. Sure. And um, and that's what we did. And w- in the process of doing it, I thought let's make a little um, recording of just us playing live to give to the club owners so they get some idea of what we are, you know, what they're getting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the process of doing that, it occurred to me, this is just too good. To, it just sounds good. <laughs> I, I yeah. think we ought to do an album. <laughs> and, of course, I didn't have the money to do the kind of album that I wanted to do. And and uh, I, I've I, I've had a close friend over the years named Danny Parks, mm-hmm. who's this amazing guitar player here in town, sure. who I've always loved. And he, he, Danny and I have worked together on demos of songs over the years. But he's always, his playing, he's, he's really, he's got a, the bebop thing. He's kind of a cross between bebop and Clapton at the same time. His grooves are very Memphis-oriented. And Danny also played with the Allman Brothers when he was very young. Oh, cool. Starting out. And t- he used to tour with them. And so, you know, I went to Danny and, and said, you know, you've got it. And he had this. He's got this great studio. He lives in Gallatin, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and he um, and he got. I always loved the drums, the way he made his drums sound in his studio. And uh, and I said, you know, you've got this studio, and I love what you do here. Why don't we do an album? You know, <laughs> like one of those Mickey Rooney movies. You've got <laughs> the studio, and I write songs. Now all we need is a mixing engineer, and we had lunch with Bob Bullock. And went, you know how to mix records, and you know how to record them. <laughs> no, it was that kind of thing. And and um, you're right; it is like high school, isn't it? It, it, just, it was just like it. It was like putting a band together. <laughs> hey, what can you do? <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's cool, and though. The guys had already we'd already played a couple of gigs in town, and everybody enjoyed making the music. So, mm-hmm. uh, and it took longer than a lot of records because. I I wanted to play with these guys, and these guys are master session players. So right. they'd work me in, you know. Every maybe this month, Tommy was available with uh, with David, and and uh, Danny could do it, and it was like right. that, you know, sort of a pastiche of time, you know, putting these little windows time together, and it took a while. But um, well, let me rephrase that. It was like high school with master session players. <laughs> yeah. <That's funny. laughs> 
and and uh, eventually we got it. We got it where we wanted it, and and, uh, and it was time for Bob to do his part. And he'd uh, over our lunch, he'd already shaken hands and said, "Sounds good to me too." Wow. Yeah. So we're partners, Bob and I and Danny on the record, and then the guys got you know they've, yeah. they've gotten paid and. and in fact, I'm taking a lot of the guys on the record with me to Tokyo. Yeah. We're going to go and play at the Cotton Club, and it's going to be Tommy. Dow Tomlin is going to play bass. That's uh, October 5th, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, the reason I point that date out is because we do have uh, quite a few uh, listeners in Japan, so if, if you're in Japan and you're listening to this, uh, keep an eye out. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Somebody I forgot to mention is, is Larry Carlton. Sure, he'll, right. be, he'll be there too, right? And he and I go way back, mm-hmm. yeah, and and uh, he's going to be a featured guest on, in my show, which is amazing to me. That's awesome. Yeah, he's he's been doing a lot of that guest uh, appearances lately. He's he's uh, been appearing in uh, some of the Steely Dan shows this summer as well. I know. He was up in <laughs> Chicago, and I really wanted to go up there and see him, and I didn't get a show. Eddie, Eddie and I were up there. How was that show? Well, we didn't see the Larry Carlton shows, but we were there for uh, Gaucho and Asia the first yeah. the first two nights, and man, it was it was extraordinary. <laughs> it oh, was. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, they were just fantastic shows. No doubt. Hey, listen, on your title track of uh, which is a self title track of the Back to Your Star, on most of the tracks of the albums, you have just a nice, deep, whirly sound, and you were talking about the Wurlitzer, but Wurlitzer Rhodes Foundation and. Uh, and you let it sort of ride throughout the whole schematic of the of the project. Um, talk to us a little bit about that sound. That uh... yeah, I guess that was just part of trying to recapture that earlier period in yeah. time. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't want to do. I did a little teeny bit of synth stuff on the record, but I'd, you know, in the past when I've recorded with big budgets and and. Uh, for for major labels, uh, I've always been able to afford to get this whole mass of players, and not always. I don't think to the benefit of a great record because mm-hmm. which you get kind of a of a of a big vanilla mix of everything, and uh, some you know in some cases when it's really really done well, it's great. But the idea of I've always had a second and even a third keyboard player during some of the tracking dates. Mm-hmm. And you get sort of this quality that that uh, it's nice, and you get all this texture. But I wanted actually to, to sa- for it to sound a little more, you know, like a band and like a guy that isn't a session player, sort of, but that's Bill LeBounty that does his, you know, I have my limitations as a musician. Uh, and so I just wanted the keys to sound... Like that, like they were going down, and they were for the most part as the tracks went down. And um, for the most part, I've used, uh, uh, I'll tell you, Roland, and I can't remember the name of the module, has the best whirly patch I've ever heard. And really? I use it all the time. And it's an older module. Dang, I wish I could have hmm. down the name of it. I use that on a lot of things, and then I use the motif, which also has the, sure. all the great roads. Yeah, they have beautiful road sounds on them. The Yamaha keyboard, that's nice. And we thought about, you know, going, doing a, putting acoustic on some of the stuff along with me. Yeah. But I didn't, then then you get into more of a a wider kind of production that I wanted, that mm-hmm. I wanted to get into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I just, I wanted to keep it as simple as I could. It's still probably not as simple as I wanted it to be, but yeah. but and it's probably and it, it's funny when you're when you do something like this. Both Danny and I, we decided, hey, we weren't we want it dry as a bone, and every time we'd make <laughs> our work mixes, we'd mix it so dry, <laughs> and, and uh, just like his studio sounded, you know. And sure. Bob talked us into making it a little more because a little more ambient. Mm-hmm, yeah. You can hear a little more room in there than the way we had it. Yeah. Sure. And it probably benefits from that, you know. To, to, it's like, especially when you're selling, you're trying to sell records all over the world, and really any place but here is where probably I sell most of my records. And one time I visited the Coca-Cola factory in Atlanta, and you got to sample all the Cokes from different parts of the world. Uh-huh. And it's amazing what passes for Coca-Cola <laughs> in various <laughs> countries, especially Asian and, di- and different places. And sure. I guess for sound, it can sort of be the same way. Yeah. So I tried to universalize <laughs> That's it. an interesting sure. analogy. Yeah. Hey, guys, let's take another short break and check out this uh, title track. Uh, this is from Bill's new album, Back to Your Star. Baby, I'm coming home 
That was the track called Back to Your Star, the title track uh, from today's guest, Bill Labonte. On the second track, uh, uh, we find a wonderful song. It's one of my favorite tracks. Is It's California Turnaround. It, it's a marvelous song. And uh, uh, tons of roads, Gibson-style accents. And I don't know whether Larry or Dave uh, or Danny uh, played those, but they're just beautiful. But I mention that because on your site, I found a neat area where you've actually uploaded some songs that are sort of in progress or sort of uh, quasi-demo tracks, you know? Yes. And I found uh, and played the original uh, or one of the, the demos. California track or turnaround tracks as a demo and I compare the two there's a little difference there I mean I thought that was really neat that's how it ended up on the final but you still have the demo up there that you can actually listen to I, th- I find that sort of fun you know yeah thanks and uh, and California turnaround is one of the few on the record that I did that was an earlier song and mm-hmm. I was thinking I needed songs and I thought about that song and um when you say I've done it in the 80s, uh-huh. like late 80s, okay. maybe right. 87 or 88, yeah. as a demo at somebody's home studio, and I had a great sax player there whose name escapes me right now. Right. But um, I thought, if I, you know, if I make it, if I just approach it very simply with these guys, like everything else, and then Larry actually plays guitar on it, and it's a patented Larry guitar. Yeah, guitar. It, it was beautiful. Yes, thank you. But there's there's also some other songs that are also on your demo little area that ended up on the album. Of course, we mentioned the California Turnaround, but there's another a couple more. I think there's Golden Now, Cinderella, and Fly Away that are sort of in the demo uh, format. Um, That's uh, well, I found one. I found one, and that I didn't even realize Uh, you had in that demo section the song "She Loves My Car." And uh, which, which uh, you know, Bobby Caldwell recorded, and, and it was, but it was made a hit by Ronnie Millsap, I think. Is that right? Yeah, Ronnie Millsap put it out. Yeah, wow, that's a great it was song. Sort of a hit because it started doing well on radio, and then the label decided they would they'd ruin Ronnie's career if they made it, if they allowed it to be heard. All <laughs> really? Yeah, so you, you know, I like that. How happy I was with that decision. <laughs> she's doing real well. But they decided, whoa, if, they, if his audience hears this, they won't buy any of his country music anymore. That, that's, well, I was about to say that because it had more of a, it had more of a rock edge to it than, than what was you know, being yeah. heard in, on country radio at that time. And he, you know, Ronnie was cool. I, I always liked his music because he always seemed to, you know, he, he, was, he was not just a country artist. You know, yeah, he, right. he was, you know, he oh, had. Oh, he's an R&B singer. Yeah. Well, that's what he used to do when he yeah. was a kid. And um, early on, his records, some of the very first ones, are are really soulful things. Mm-hmm. In fact, all of his records are. I, I've always loved him. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's got a great voice. You know, when I think about your over the overall vibe of this album, um, I don't want to say that it's uh, it's. I mean, this is this is what I call a premier um, a classic headphone album where you could put your headphones on and just chill out, you know, and and listen to the whole thing, and it just holds like glue. In fact, I've made that comment with a, a couple of the past guests that we've had that are similarly songwriters that are coming back after a while and they're writing, and I'm finding that the way that people used to write or the way that you're writing right now is you're writing an album and not necessarily a song, you know? Um, yeah. talk, talk to us a little bit about that because I think it's sort of cool. I think as, a, as an artist, and I don't know, if, I, I think there are people that approach it, like John Mayer and people that still approach, I'm, I'm sure Robbie does, where you, 
you find a place mm-hmm. that you want to go with your music and with your and and with your songs. And for me, that place was somewhere on the coast of Oregon, like I said, pulling that U-Haul trailer and get on this quest, looking for looking for love. Basically, is what you're looking for your Cinderella or whoever. Mm-hmm. You're look, but you're also look, I, I remember our quest was to me the most you could do. If you could be anywhere you wanted, doing what, exactly what you wanted in life, yeah. on this quest, the quest was headed towards the hippest musicians in the hippest jam session with the best weed right. ever <laughs> on the coolest stage and the coolest club because you didn't, there weren't coliseums and stuff back then. You just, right, you just wanted to. It was all about creating the sound that you wanted to create. With with people that were like minded, you know, and so that that was the quest, and 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 uh, and it's it's really not anything very huge and exciting that it's about. It's not about you know ending hunger or curing cancer. I don't know what it's about. <laughs> it's just about me, you know, and and a lot of it is I pulled out of my past, but then on the other hand, I wanted to drag my past right up here with me now into the present and push it into the future you know yeah. that's kind of, it's kind of about what i'm doing you know i'm uh and i'm still playing i'm playing with those guys that were on my quest you mm-hmm. know? it's neat hey listen you know what i i really like about this project what i can appreciate about it is sort of that the instrumentation it doesn't really take over the vocal i mean you had mentioned a couple of seconds ago that she's like you and danny talk about keeping it dry and you know in, in other words you know, it doesn't make it sound like an album that you have to scream out the lyrics you just sort of Breathe them, and they come out, and you have plenty of space for the sax solos, which are wonderful guitar solos. And I think you left a lot of neat space for for musicians to do their their magic. And I think that's it was sort of the glue of it, you know. I wanted it, one thing about my philosophy that is uh, I've been lucky enough to always be with wonderful players, and I, I'm not really a jazz artist, but I'm heavily influenced by it. And so my records, I've always wanted them to be vehicles for guys that can blow, you know, in some way or another on them, whether it's a really cool bass part or a solo or whatever. And, and I wanted to maintain that yeah. record. And it's really, it's, it's, it's still fairly dry by, the, by certain standards of mm-hmm. today. But because um, uh, at the time it just seemed like all the ambience in the world, but it, it's still a pretty dry album yeah. even if it isn't you know pristinely dry one of my favorite tracks on your new album is a track called uh, Cinderella and this song has such a deep groove and like Eddie mentioned earlier about so many of the tracks on this album it has so much room to breathe and uh, I want to take time out here for a second and uh, let's give this track a listen this is Cinderella from Bill's new album Back to Your Star Stay. I search every truck stop until 
till I find you someday Cinderella How much further do I have to go Down this long old dusty blacktop road Just to find a girl with one glass slipper on One slipper gone You're the one I got an elephant's memory A road dog soul I work with me, Henry Let the good times roll I do Mickey's monkey I jump through hoops And baby, I go hungry Whatever to get to you Cinderella How much further do I have to go Down this long old dusty blacktop road Just to find a girl With one glass slipper on One slipper's gone You're the one
And that was the track Cinderella from today's guest, Bill Abouni. You mentioned a little while ago that you're going to be over in Japan, and you're going to do a few dates there with uh, Larry Carlton sitting in. But I'm curious to know, are you going to have uh, any dates in the States, uh, you know, come in the near future? I'd love to, but that, I doubt if that's in the cards. Right now we're putting together um, a European situation. Right. Um, wow. I, 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 there's a place called um, Casino de Paris mm-hmm. that yeah, I've right. played with Robbie. In right. the past, and I'm hoping that I can get back in there. But in the process of planning that, I want to try and get some dates in Italy and, and Scandinavia. Surprisingly, or, or unsurprisingly, my records do almost as well, maybe better in Scandinavia than they do in France and Japan. Interesting. But I'd love to get up to Sweden to play, too. You know, over there in Scandinavia, I mean, a lot of our listeners are from over there, from that area. And and it's we've said this before in interviews that they get the music, man. They love this yeah. genre, this feel, this, uh, you know how they, you know, you've heard the talk, but they've just embraced West Coast, which is sort of a misnomer, but West Coast to, to the 10th to the yeah. degree. They have. They, it's a genre, and it, and I remember in France when I first recorded mm-hmm. uh, the Bill Bounty album with Russ Teitelman, they they had this genre they called California jazz. Yeah, okay. Sort of this idealization of of pop and jazz together in California, and this pastiche of of sound. And uh, eventually, it became West Coast music. Yeah. But at the time, I I thought, and somebody said, yeah, it's like a little cultish kind of. Uh, audiophile appreciation of the sound, and and I thought, well, I'm going to exploit that in the short time that it might be around. And the fact is that if you know, not that it's like this huge steamroller, but it it actually grew. It didn't get smaller mm-hmm. over the years, and spread to other other places in Europe. And people who love this, it's a window of time, and it, and it involves certain players and certain artists, and. Um, I'm, it's delightful to me. I, sure. I uh, love the fact that that there are people that appreciate this thing called West Coast music yeah. because yeah. it's kind of what I'm about in a lot of different ways. Yeah, three years ago you actually played the Casino de Paris with uh, when you were like as you mentioned, uh, you know, we're touring with with Robbie, and uh, but you also had a, a, a sort of a different mix of of performers. I mean, we mentioned that you'll be taking Larry and Danny, a few guys over to to, to Tokyo, but back here and when you uh, toured back in '06, you took Larry Hoppen, Leslie Smith, David Sanchez, uh, Rick Chitikoff, and Peter uh, Bonetta, and a different mix of musicians. Um, Robbie, that was a lot because Robbie was generous enough to um, give lend me his band. Mm-hmm. At that time, I I was I didn't have a band assembled, and and I was involved in a lot of other songwriting ventures and whatnot. And, and uh, Robbie was kind enough to uh, and his band mm-hmm. because they learned my songs, and they Peter Bonetta played drums, Rick played bass, yeah. Uh, and 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 it was like, to me, it was like a family because I knew we, we've all been friends now for almost thirty years since uh-huh. we all lived in a little band house in East Hollywood together. And mm-hmm. Robbie, after Robbie had first had his hit, and Peter was there, and Rick Cheese, and Leslie Smith, and um, now David is a is a newer acquaintance and a friend that Robbie has found in Wood through Woodstock. 
and he's also an amazing oh, musician yeah. and talent oh, and gift to have on the stage with you. And yeah, well, we'd love to have him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you well, know, if, I'm surprised you haven't. I yeah. mean, the first time I saw him play was when he used to tour with Sting. Exactly. And he just blew me away. That was in the early 90s. Right. Yeah. Just incredible. Yeah, he's great. And the other thing about Robbie's band is it's a there's you're filled with these great singers it's not that you know in the present band that i have it's i'm really the vocalist in the band some of the guys do some background parts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but in robbie's band you have these amazing singers like larry and and leslie and robbie and those three voices backing right. up my things uh, it was a whole different approach to the to the sound of things yeah so that, yeah, that was a nice thing. That's neat. Well, Word on the street has it that you're already in the process of working on your next record. Is that true? Yeah. Not answerable to anybody except for myself. And, and uh, I don't have a schedule. In it and and uh, this is kind of what I want to do. I want to just uh, create my own music and uh, make that a priority as opposed to trying to cater to, to the marketplace as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, yeah, I've got two or three things already written towards a new record. Very cool. Very cool. Will you, will you enlist uh, some of the same players? or? It, I think so. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Well, that's great. And, you know, Bill, we, we really appreciate you spending time with us. And this has been a, a great conversation and, and uh, very insightful, and we appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate it. And uh, for more information about Bill, you know, they can visit uh, your website at BillAbounty.com. Yep. And uh, do, you have a, do you have a MySpace presence also? I do. Okay, great. Check it out. Build a bounty on MySpace. Yep. Good. And uh, we'll we'll stay in touch. You know, maybe when this new record comes out, we'll, uh, you know, down the road, whenever that is, maybe we can hook up again and chat about that. No doubt. Guys, Mm -hmm. thanks a lot. And you you do a great job. I've I've enjoyed this, but, and and I've enjoyed listening to to the archives of wonderful music. No, that's much appreciated. We enjoy it, too. We love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, man. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Bill LeBounty for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to the Inside Music Cast correspondents, Scott Gross, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Brian Pearson. And check out our new website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can join in on forum conversations about the musicians we cover here on Inside Music Cast, as well as a variety of other music-related topics. You can also catch up on past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out bonus content that we'll be posting often. Find us at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.